it's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You got a, a guy who's a career 300 hitter standing in front of you, and you're a 220, 230 hitter, but yet you won't take advice. You won't make an adjustment. You're going to go up to the plate and do the same thing over and over and over again. And I tell them straight to their face, I said, you're a dumbass. What you're doing in the batter's box, I said, first off, I wouldn't even think of this first off. I said, second off, I would have changed something like yesterday. I wouldn't just keep having my ass handed to me. No, I'm going to change something so I can have some success. Really excited for today's podcast and my guest coming up in just a moment. Want to tell you that today's show is brought to you by New Works Plumbing, locally owned in Sacramento for 20 years. Leak detection, water line repair, bathroom plumbing. New Works Plumbing is a full service plumbing solution. No matter how small or how large your plumbing problem, they've got a fix for you. And their expert technicians are available 24-7 for all of your plumbing needs. Just go to newworksplumbing.com. That's newworksplumbing.com, N-E-W-W-R-X-Plumbing.com. My guest today had a career batting average of 303 with 284 homers. He had 1,205 RBI. He played with the Giants from 86 to 93, then Texas, Baltimore, and ended his career in St. Louis. Six-time All-Star, was the NL Championship Series MVP in 1989. He's got a gold glove, two-time Silver Slugger Award, and one of the most enjoyable guys to watch during his era in Major League Baseball. And I had a chance to talk to him just recently on No Filter Network, nofilter.net. And today, my guest on If You Don't Like That is Will Clark. Some technical issues when we try to catch up a couple of weeks ago, but man, it's great to have you on. How are you doing today? You know what, Grant? I'm doing well. Appreciate you being patient and, you know, and getting your little glitches <laughs> in the system squared away, but we're carrying on. Got a little rainy, thundery day down here in Louisiana, so this is a great time to do it because I'm inside all day today. Yeah, no hunting today, huh? No, no, no. And it's not that time of the year for me. I'm more, you know, getting my sights kind of squared away on baseball right now. I actually... You and I were talking about it before we got on the show. I actually have to leave on Thursday, and I'm going to go down to Scottsdale, Arizona, and see our minor league spring training since the major leaguers are already up north now. You know, let's talk about that, Will, because I, I grew up 
as a diehard baseball fan, I love the game. Just to give you an idea, I grew up on, in New York. I was a diehard Yankees fan. I'm so old, Will. I watched Will Clark, I mean, uh, Mickey Mantle play at Yankee Stadium. And, Will, yeah. we used to fight. We used to fight in Little League, not fist fights, but we used to fight in Little League about who was going to be able to wear number seven. Like, it was a big freaking deal that you yeah. could wear number seven in Little League baseball. And then I, I grew up in that Yankee Red Sox rivalry throughout the 70s, and I've always been a big baseball fan. But I got to tell you, man, the way the game is played now, I just don't like it. And you said you're leaving. You're going to be working with the kids, you know, the younger players. How different is the game now? Let's talk about hitting first. And, and what a lot. What are the things that you're trying to teach now when you work with young, talented players? So, you know, it's kind of, you know, I, I would imagine it's similar to what you saw in the NBA, too, and how the NBA shifted a little bit. But, you know, in, in baseball right now, there's so much being made about the first off the statistical side of things. And it's almost like they're trying to take the gut instinct, the human element kind of out of it. And you're never going to be able to do that. That's first off. Second off is, you know, just some theories on how to hit and stuff that was passed down, you know, from generation to generation. It seems like it's skipping by this generation. You know, basic common sense. If the ball's coming in this way, you want to go right back at it that way. You don't want to come up at it. And that's that launch angle craziness that they're doing now. So when you're coming up at it, I mean, you, your timing has to be absolutely perfect. If not, you're going to either miss it completely, which is where all the strikeouts are coming from, or hitting routine fly balls. I heard you and Bernsey on Deuces Wild a few weeks ago, and you talked so much about swing playing. Yeah. For those that are yeah. listening and not watching – when you talk swing playing, what is it that you're exactly – what is it that players today aren't doing when you play? Okay, so it's kind of exactly what we were just talking about. So so you want to keep your swing on the plane of the baseball. So the baseball is coming in this way. You want to try to keep it on the plane of the baseball as long as possible. You don't want to deviate from that plane and get off of that plane. If you come in towards the baseball this way – you don't, your timing doesn't have to be absolutely perfect because I can hit it here. I can hit it here. I can hit it out here as long as I'm on the plane of where it's coming from. And that's why you saw a lot of guys back in the day. First off, there were not that many huge strikeout guys. If there were huge strikeout guys, believe it or not, they got sent down. They were like, see you later. We need, we need guys that put the ball in play. Also back in the day, you know, your Tony Gwynn, your Wade Boggs, you know, all of those guys. I mean, you know, 330 for them was was a bad season, supposedly. You know, now these guys now are hitting 240, and they're like, oh, man, I had a good year. You know, no, you hit 240, dude. <laughs> 240 with, right. with 25, 25 homers and 50 RBIs. I, I, I could do that in probably the first two months of the season, you know, if I really needed to. So, you know, it's just one of those things. I was fascinated when you were talking to Bernsey, what you thought was a really good year. And at the end of the year, Al Rosen talked to you and said, hey, man, we need yep. to change your swing because you're hitting too many double plays. I can't have my three-man hitting the double plays. And then you mentioned about working with Dusty. And I've known Dusty for a long time. I had him on this podcast back in December. I just have so much respect. I'm fascinated by him. What did he do for your game? Well, Dusty was my hitting instructor for five years before he became my manager in 93, which was my last year with the Giants. And till this day, we're, we're, we're good friends. Dusty and I... We did a few things mechanically, you know, as far as tightening up the swing and, and, and doing a lot of stuff for timing purposes or timing on the pitch, timing on the pitcher. So we did a lot of that. But, you know, wholesale swing changes, we, we really didn't do that much. 
you had mentioned, you know, Eric Burns and I were talking 1988. I had a pretty darn solid year. I mean, I was in, I think I hit 300 or might've been 295, whatever it was. And I had 29 homers and I led the NL in RBIs. I had 116 RBIs. And so we came into our exit meeting with Al Rosen, who was my general manager. And Al was a AL MVP for the Cleveland Indians back in the fifties. So he really knew what he was talking about. And, you know, so I was expecting to get, you know, like a little pat on the back. Hey, nice job. You know, one of those numbers. And instead, first thing out of his mouth is he goes, you're going to change your swing around. I was like, excuse me. And he goes, goes, I can't have my number three hole hitter hitting. I I don't know what I hit 15, 17, whatever it was, double play ground balls. He says, if you're going to be in the middle of the lineup, he says, you're going to be able to drive the ball, drive in runs, get on base for everybody and not end the inning on a double play ground ball. And I said, you know, I said, that made a lot of sense to me. I said, yes, sir. And so then fast forward, here comes Dusty. So now Dusty and I, you know, are working together. And I said, Dusty, you know, this is what Mr. Rosen said. And he said, look, he said, we got a few things we need to tighten up. He said, especially on your timing. And that's what we worked on the whole off season. Consequently, the next year, 1989, was my best year in baseball by far. No, I'm fascinated by that. And the reason why I'm fascinated by what you said, you just talked about your numbers. You had a great season. And a lot of guys could have taken that wrong as if, wait a minute, I, I just kicked yeah. ass for you all year. And now you want me to change what I do and could have taken it the wrong way and could have had a, a, a big, you know, kink in their shoulder. And, you know, they were all pissed off. But it doesn't seem like you did that. And that you don't see enough of that today. Like I see that change when in the NBA, when I see young players come in, I use the word entitlement. Well, there's so much entitlement now. And, and, and certain players, you just can't say things like that, too. But you didn't take it that way. No, I I didn't take it that way at all. I, I took it as here's an MVP that's talking to me and he wants to make me better. And mm-hmm. not only make me better, but because I'm in the number three sl- slot in the order, make everybody else in the rest of the batting order that much better because I'm going to be getting on for them and be able to drive in more runs. We're going to win ball games because of this. And so, uh, you know, for me personally, you know, it was like, all right, yeah, I'll make the change because it's going to benefit the team. A lot of, uh, you know, nowadays kids, uh, you know, I mean, I hate to say it, but, you know, like you said, entitlement. Uh, I call it being a dumb shit. You want to know the honest guy's truth? Um, <laughs> right. You know, I mean, you got a, a guy who's a career 300 hitter standing in front of you, and you're a 220, 230 hitter, but yet you won't take advice. You won't make an adjustment. You're going to go up to the plate and do the same thing over and over and over again. And I tell them straight to their face. I said, you're a dumbass. I said, because what you're doing in the batter's box, I said, first off, I wouldn't even think of this first off. I said, second off, I would have changed something like yesterday. I wouldn't just keep having my ass handed to me. No, I'm going to change something so I can have some success. When I was covering the Giants at spring training in Scottsdale, That was back when I was doing the Kings, but I was also a sports anchor on Channel 31 in Sacramento. And I used to love sitting in the dugout and listening to Roger Craig hold his little press briefings and talking baseball. I didn't even ask Roger questions. I used to just love, Will, I used to love to just be around Roger and listen to him talk baseball. What was it like playing for him? 
You know, for, for me personally, you know, playing in pro ball, it, it, you know, in, in kind of an extension of where I came from in Mississippi State, you know, I had really never been away from home. I went to Mississippi State and, you know, Ron Polk was my coach there and, and he was an awesome mentor. And so then you fast forward, you know, a year or two and then here's Roger Craig and Roger Craig became like my second dad, you know, because we spent so much time together and, you know, if he needed to talk about something, you know, I got called into the office and, hey, look, you know, you, you got to be in this position. You can't be over here. You got to be over there. And so I learned a ton of, you know, baseball and just life experiences from Roger Craig. He was a he was a great first manager for me. One of the things that I really liked about it, you know, some of my teammates weren't necessarily that way, but he was very unpredictable. I mean, we'd hit and run, we'd squeeze, we'd steal bases, we'd pitch out. You know, so there was always something crazy going on on the field and it kept you on your toes, you know, and and you had to know all the signs. You had to know where to position people and move guys around, you know, defensively. And so I, I, it kept me in the game and I enjoyed it. I'll tell you something else I learned in a real hurry down in Scottsdale. You would talk to the media and you were great with the media. But let me tell you something. When Will Clark stepped onto the field to do his work, he was doing his work. And don't you dare go up to Will once he's doing his work. I, I learned right. that real quickly. I observed. I watched other people and I'm like, okay, wait till Will is done with his work. But I would go, when, if I needed you, before you walked out, I go, hey, Will, when you're done with your work today, could I grab you for a minute? You would go, yep. <laughs> One word. No problem. Yep. Hey, look, there's. Uh, you know, it's, you know, I mean, and that, that's kind of where I kind of drew the line was, you know, hey, look, you know, there are certain things that we need to take care of on the field. And, you know, if you're distracted, and especially with a baseball coming at you, you get freaking hit. <laughs> I mean, Brandon, Brandon Belt's been hit in the head three times already in his career because he's not paying attention on the field and one whacks him upside the head. So, hey, look, while I'm on the field, I'm going to concentrate. I'm not getting hit in the head. All right. And on top of that, I have some things that I need to do as far as being on the field, being a professional, doing what you need to do to get ready for the ball game. Then after the ball game, hey, look, I got time. I'm going to be in my locker every day. I'm going to sit there. I'm going to face the press. I'm going to face the music. If you had a great day, fine. If you had a terrible day and you stunk up the joint, you still have to be there. You have to be a man. You have to represent the team. So when we got cut off the last time we were talking, I was in the middle of telling you the story. There was a period of about maybe 48 hours, maybe 72 hours when you were the highest paid player in baseball. And then right after you signed your deal, Ricky Henderson did. But you had signed a four-year deal for $15 million. And I was standing in the – you were taking ground balls at first. And I was standing kind of near the coach's box. And I, I had my cameraman. I go, start off on Will and then zoom into me. And I said, now to put that into perspective – if you made $50,000 a year, you'd have to work for 300 years to make what Will's going to make in the next four. And I swear on my life, you took a ground ball and you stopped and you went like this. What? Like the typical, what? And I go, hey, Will, do the math, man. 50 grand a year, 300 years. And you're like, you just started shaking your head and kicking the dirt. And you were like, damn, <laughs> I'll never forget that. You know, that that was the time of the year, I guess you want to say, in, in baseball where the salary started, you know, sort of getting after it a little bit. They had signed a new, you know, TV package. And so some of the guys now were starting to get paid. You know, they, you know, they had, like you said, it was Ozzie Smith and Gary Carter. And I think Mike Schmidt were like the first $2 million players. And then they had a few Cal Ripken maybe and 
like you said, Ricky Henderson. There was another player or two in there that were the three million dollar guys. I was the first guy to sign a four million dollar deal, and then not far after me, uh, maybe a few weeks or a month, Don Mattingly signed another one that was a little bit more than me, and then and then it started jumping. Then it started going six, seven, eight million a year. I know Joe Carter, yeah. Kirby Puckett. You know, guys like that sign some some really good deals. So I tell everybody, you because know, they, they look at the salaries nowadays and they're like, oh, my God, what would the and I said, hey, look, I mean, in my day, I was kind of on the elevator ride going up, you know, with my guys that I played against and played with, you know, and then now it just it, I guess you want to say it's because of TV. I mean, it's all because of TV and and this kind of stuff, Zoom and media involved and all that and people pay for it and players are getting part of part of the pie. Where did your passion and your love for competing and playing baseball with that vigor, that energy that you wore on your sleeve, was, was that from your parents? Was that from somewhere else? Or was that just what you were born with? Straight from my dad. I give him, you know, every prop there ever was from when I was a kid. You know what I mean, when I was a kid, everything was a game. Everything was a competition. And yeah, I mean, he would teach you, but he'd also not take it easy on you. And so you had to earn it. And I loved it because it made me work more if I needed to beat him at something or vice versa. If I needed to beat another team, I was going to, I was willing to work more at it and for my whole career. And, you know, I mean, you know, Tony Gwynn and I talked about it all the time, you know, as I'd go into San Diego and I could hear somebody hitting and I knew it was Tony and I'd go watch him hit, you know, and then vice versa. He'd come into San Francisco. He said, there's always somebody hitting. He says, I knew by that sound who was it. And it's a mutual admiration society between some professionals. But yet at the same time, you know, we're going out there. We're trying to beat each other. Around what age do you kind of get the feeling or was told that you're better than everybody else? That you, you were a guy that, OK, well, he may have a real future in this game. I was the guy in high school that kind of stood on top of the plate and bailed and wailed. And you know, I was fortunate enough to have pretty good hand-eye coordination so I could get away with it. So that was my sophomore and my junior year. In between my junior year and my senior year, I went to a guy who was a good friend. His name was Barry Butera. He played AAA with the Red Sox. He was a international league batting champion. So he knew what the hell he was doing. And he told me, you know, the higher you get in, in, in baseball, the more they're going to expose the holes that you have in your swing. He said, so... I'm actually going to back you off the plate. I'm going to close you up a little bit. And by doing that, your big holes become a little smaller. And then you can work on going the other way in the ball field, you know, so they can't pitch you away the whole time. You're always going to be able to pull the ball because that's one of your strengths. And you use the whole ballpark. And that was another one of those things like Al Rosen conversation. It made common sense to me. And I was like, mm -hmm. yeah, that sounds great to me. I said, I want to be a harder out rather than a guy that had these big old holes that you could pitch to. So once I closed up and we we spent the whole fall of my, in between my junior and senior year together, and I, I sort of kind of got the hang of my swing, my senior year is like I was unstoppable. I hit, I hit 750 my senior year, and I didn't have enough at-bats to make like the All-State team and stuff like that because I got walked a ton. So the the paper gave me like a bunch of at bats and it lowered my batting average to five sixty so that I could make <laughs> so I could make the all state teams and all that sort of stuff. And then I went to Mississippi State and did kind of the same thing. Yeah. And 
I was able to get away with it because, yeah, guys were throwing a little bit harder, but they weren't, you know, flat out getting it up there. But then when we got into pro ball, that's when I started having to make little adjustments here and there. And you and I talked about, you know, what what I did with Dusty and and some of the stuff we did there. When you first made it to the bigs and everybody talks about, you know, your first at bat and Nolan Ryan and we've heard the story, which is just fascinating for anyone that hasn't heard the story. Did you have any doubt at all? I mean, when I think of you, the first thing where that comes to my mind is confidence. Like every time I watch you do anything, I'm like, man, that is one confident individual. Yeah. Take me back to your first days in the bigs and what that was like. And if there was any doubt in at all, did you really feel that you were going to be a big time star? Did you, did you have that much confidence at that age, at that point in your career? You know, uh, <laughs> as far as like being a star or anything like that, I had no idea. I mean, I just, I just knew that, Hey, look, you know, my goal going into that spring training was to, to make the major league. And that, that was my goal. And, um, you know, that spring training kind of opened my eyes because I was leading the Cactus League in the Triple Crown. Now, this is about halfway through spring training. And I remember I was on I was on second base. I, this was my third hit of the day. I, I had two doubles and a single. And Roger, the third base coach told me, he says, come off the field. And I was like, no. And he goes, you need to come off the field. And I said, I'm not coming off the field. And so he says, Roger wants you to come off the field. I said, I'm not coming off the field. And so <laughs> so finally, Roger came out of the dugout, you know, and he's like, come here. And so I had to run off the field. We went straight down the tunnel, and we went into uh, Roger's office. And he goes, don't ever show me up like that on the field. And I said, don't ever take me out of a game when I'm three for three. And he like looked at me, he looked at me and he goes, well, if you're going to be my first baseman, he says, you need to listen to what I'm saying. And I, I did a double take. I said, your first baseman. And he goes, yes. He says, you made the major league team. And I was like, oh my God. You know, that, wow. so that's how I found out about, you know, being a, being a major leaguer. And I told him, don't worry, I won't show you up ever again, but don't take me out when I'm three for three. I said, I'm staying <laughs> in the game. That's and fascinating. So, what, what a what a phenomenal story yeah. that is. That's so, incredible. So, you know, oh, so, go ahead. so to take to take it like a little bit of a step further with your question was because I was facing these major leaguers in spring training and I was having some success, the confidence was still there, but you also knew it's spring training. It's not the regular season. So now I gotta do what I'm doing now, and I got to bring it into the regular season for 162 games. And that really kind of separates the men from the boys. When you got to play every day and you go through the nicks and the pings and getting hit and still having to go up to home plate. And, you know, at that time, it was a lot more contact on the field, you know, because of, we didn't have the stupid rules that they got now. So, you know, I mean, you had to kind of be a man and you had to prepare yourself for six or eight months of being kind of banged up the whole time. I've got a couple of friends that are umpires and I've asked them when they're behind the plate and a guy like Araldis Chapman is pitching, can you is is it a big difference between a guy throwing ninety five and a guy throwing hundred and they go, Oh yeah, take me yeah. in the batter's box, Nolan Ryan. But is there a big difference seriously from uh, in four or five miles an hour in speed of a right. pitch from your perspective? How big of a difference is that? Explain that to it, the fans. It's it, it's it's absolutely incredible how how fast 
100 miles an hour is from 60 feet, six inches. Um, when Nolan is just getting ready to cut the ball loose, he's back here. I've darn near started my swing. And I basically am on go the whole time. And then I have to figure out, is it a ball? Is it a strike? Am I going to hold up or am I going to keep the swing going? Here's the thing about a guy like that. You know, a guy that just flat out, I mean, just brought it like that. And Randy Johnson was the same way. And, you know, before he got a little older, Pedro Martinez was the same way. Those, those kind of guys. You know, if you're cutting the ball loose at 98, 99 miles an hour, it's not that easy. As a matter of fact, it's really tough to pull a baseball. And now I watch these games, you know, and they're talking about this kid's throwing 96, that kid's throwing 98. And the hitters are like hooking them foul. And I'm like, mm. no, nah, that ain't 96 or 98. If you're hooking the ball foul, that ain't, that ain't what you do with 96 or 98, you know, especially back in the day. Cause I mean, the ball just exploded on you. And so I, I think it's watered down a little bit, especially on those radar guns. I think they're a little bit juiced because I know I've stood in the, in the batter's box while some of these guys are throwing like bullpens and all that. And I'm like, nah, that ain't. That ain't no 96, I promise you. But if you're facing Nolan Ryan, I was wondering about this. If, if you were a batter facing a Raldis Chapman, he's got two pitches. So you know you get in the heat. So, But when you face a guy like that and you know that a fastball is coming, what difference does that make to a hitter? And again, I know you've said this hundreds and hundreds of times, but for the people that are watching and listening that haven't heard you're at bat with Nolan Ryan, take us through that. Well, I mean, you know, first at bat in the major leagues and you're facing Nolan, got all the butterflies. I'm bouncing off the walls just like everybody else would be in the first major league at bat. And he did, he did like the best thing that could ever happen for me personally was first pitch. He threw me a curveball. So I really actually saw it the whole way. And I, I was at the batter's box. I sort of giggled and um, then, and the catcher looks up at me and goes, what are you giggling at? He goes, he's throwing me curveballs. <laughs> and so the next, the next pitch was a fastball up and away. And I saw it really good. And I, I thought my timing was good on it. And then the third pitch was a fastball right there. And when I hit it, it went out of dead center field at the Astrodome. When I hit it, nobody goes out of center field at the Astrodome. And it did. And I was like, oh, my goodness. And I just floated around home plate and touched the plate. And my family was up in the stands. So I pointed to them up in the stands. Yeah. And then you know, after you high-five everybody, we sat down on the bench. And I don't know, this calm came over me. And I looked at Chili Davis, who was sitting next to me. He's also one of my you know veterans on the team. And I go, He's going to drill me next time up. He goes, oh, hell yeah, he is. The next at bat, Nolan was in his windup, and I was oh, I was kind of going down to the ground already. <laughs> I, I would have gone up there with hockey goalie equipment. You know? <laughs> but, you oh know, here's, here's, another, here's another thing. You know, you know, Nolan, when he cut it loose, I mean, it was violent. I mean, because he'd cut it loose, and he's out there grunting. And then the ball, the whole way in flight is, you know, it hit the catcher's mitt and make this god-awful sound. It's like, oh, my God, that guy's bringing it right there. <laughs> we got a lot of people on the chat line. Someone says, Grant, uh, tell Mr. Clark that he was our idol for all of us 40-something kids here in NorCal. Thank you, Will, for not letting us down. When I was talking to you, I believe two weeks ago, and you, you had said, sorry, I had somebody at the door. <laughs> you said it was the UPS guy. And you were telling me about the volume of fan mail that you still get. That's unbelievable. Will, no, really, though, man, that, that is just phenomenal. The, the impact 
and the love that people have for you that here we are in 2021 and they're still reaching out to you, man. That's very neat. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. And, you know, um, yeah, I, th- I think that, that, you know, the, the baseball card industry is coming back a little bit and, and the fans mm-hmm. are really taking advantage of it. I'm getting, I don't know, probably, I, well, hell, I just, <laughs> I just got through doing a big mess of fan mail. It came in five different boxes and it was over a thousand pieces. And that was for the last three weeks. So, wow. you know, the Giants are getting, Giants are getting quite a bit of fan mail. And it actually, you want to know the truth. It's, it's getting kind of tough to keep up with it. So what I've done now is I've actually asked for donations for autism. My son is a little autistic. It's one of the reasons mm-hmm. why I retired from baseball when I did. And the Giants have supported my uh, autism outreach, I guess you want to say. And so we do an autistic night at the ballpark and, and the Giants really do a great job, you know, supporting that. And then now I'm asking for, you know, some donations. And and if you give me a donation, I'll definitely, you know, sign a piece of fan mail, get it back to you. But at least it's a way to help autism out. You know, Will, you talked about retiring. And when you look at your numbers, there was no question that you could have continued your career in the bigs, but you talked about your son and really the important things in life. So I guess with that said, there is no second guessing at all for that decision you made, even though deep in your heart, you knew you could still go out and play. Exactly. I mean, you know, I had just got through, you know, having a whale of a year with the, with the St. Louis Cardinals. I was on a roll for the last, oh, four months of the season. I hit like 355 or something like that. So it, it wasn't like, you know, I couldn't keep doing what I was doing. But there comes a time where you see an improvement in your son, especially when you're home, and you have to make that choice. Hey, am I going to keep doing what I've been doing? I've, I've been very successful at it, and I can still do it, but I am needed at the house. And, and so in that regard, looking back and being home and watching my son grow up and having him go with me everywhere and try to teach him things – he is now almost just a straight member of society, uh, awesome. whereas back then he wasn't at all, period. And, uh, you know, so, yeah, you could have played a little bit more. But then also I've also seen the flip side of things where guys spent two or three years too long in the big leagues and their talent went extremely downhill and they should have got out two, two years earlier. So, you know, it, it's a double-edged sword, but but I understand it. But uh I made my choice. I never looked yep. back. I'm looking forward. And it was the best choice I ever made for my family. You know, when I hear you talk about that, starting off playing at Candlestick Park, then you go to Texas, then St. Louis. But the reason why I'm bringing this up, you know, talking about freezing your ass off in San Francisco. I remember in the mid-80s. Now, listen, Will, in the mid-80s, I was a weekend sports anchor at a TV station in Decatur, Illinois, which is two hours from St. Louis. And that was Whitey Ball. All right. And that team was great, yep. you know, with Whitey Herzog and, you know, Jack Clark and McGee and Coleman and Van Slyke. And I can go on and on. Tommy Herr, Ozzie Smith. And I'll never forget the first time I was at Bush Stadium. All right. I'm covering, you know, the game. I'm getting some interviews. And it was an afternoon game. And I'm standing on the carpet behind the batting cage, and I have these light-colored dress shoes on. And I kid you not, okay, I sweated through my dress shoes. I couldn't wear them ever again the rest of my life. Well, you know, standing on the carpet out there at Bush Stadium, I'm like, Jesus, <laughs> was there anything worse than that, my man? Yeah, it was, that was tough. That was tough. So, you, you know, the, the old cardboard boxes that, you know, a case of Cokes or a case of beer would come in? So they would yeah. take those little cardboard boxes and they'd fill them up with ice 
and you would come in off the field and you would literally stand in that box of ice <laughs> to cool your feet off. And there were there were definitely a few days where the shoes melted and the spikes were coming up through the bottom of the shoes. So you had to you had to get that pair of spikes. That one was done. See you later. And it was pretty bad at, on those AstroTurf fields some days. Man, sitting in the dugout at Bush Stadium, which, you know, you remember the lower, so the field was kind of like at eye level, and you'd see the heat papers coming off the field. Yeah. And I was yeah. like, damn, man, that is hot, you know? Yeah, you know, it's uh, it was it was it was pretty bad, and uh, you know, I kind of felt bad for like Tony Pena. I mean, and I even asked him. I was like, Tony, you know, how do you do it? You know, catching you know three or four yep. games in a row here, and he said, Well, he says I did everything to stay cool. He said, You know, I had the misters, and then he put cabbage leaves in his in his helmet. You know, when he was behind home plate and stuff like that. So he did everything possible just to stay stay you know hydrated during the game, so he didn't pass out. When you look back at your career, is there one at bat that you wish you could have over at each that you? One at bat that I could have over. That's a good question, Grant, because because most people ask me, you know, which at bats did you like? What at bat could I have over? Wow. You know what? I'm gonna say not really, not really any. When I walked up to home plate, you know, I was I was prepared. And I kind of, I kind of let it all hang out there. When the fans came to the ballpark and they saw me cut one loose, I mean, I was, I was not going 80%. I'm going 150% all the time when I'm cutting it loose. So, you know, there, there were at bats that you look back on. You're like, you big dummy. How did you not know that curveballs coming or, you know, <laughs> something like that. But to look back and say, I wish I could have redone this one. Not really, because I mean, I homered in my my first at bat in the minor leagues. I homered in my first at bat in the major leagues. I homered in my first game at Candlestick. I homered wow. on my last at bat in the big leagues when I was with St. Louis. I homered in the first at bat in St. Louis. So, you know, you start looking back, and there's a lot of firsts in there. But to have one at bat out of damn near ten thousand and say I want to redo it, eh? No, not really. You played at Candlestick Park, and again, anyone that's been there knows, but from a player's perspective, people would not know because they were watching and not playing. But boy, could you imagine? I know you've talked about this, but man, what your numbers would have ended up had you not played yeah. in that stadium? I mean, it would have been unbelievable. Yeah. And and just to, just to give you a little preview on that, because Barry Bonds and I talked about it, and after, you know, playing a full year in it, you know, Barry was like, you know, he was the MVP that year in 93, and he was like, Jesus Christ, Will. He says, he says I could have had better numbers if I played somewhere else. And I go, I know. I said, you know, I said, you know, Candlestick was going to cost you. It was going to cost you five to ten homers a year and maybe 20 RBIs a year. Just because, I mean, you'd catch one on one of them blustery bastard nights. I mean, you'd catch one. And the right fielder would come in on it. And you're like, man, I got all of that one. And then the next day, you'd catch the same ball on, on a nice day, and it went out by 40 rows. And you're like, man, that just that's just a stick. But it was my home ballpark. It was the place where I was playing every day. So we never, ever used it for an excuse. That was one of the things Roger Craig talked about is do not use this ballpark as an excuse because the other team is going to do that. 
this is our ballpark. Matter of fact, if anything, believe it or not, and he said this, if anything, we're going to play more night games so it can get even worse so they're more miserable out there. So, um, you know, that's just kind of the mindset you had to have while you're playing at the stick. You know, from someone that grew up in New York, in that environment with the Yankees and obviously having the Mets there and they won in when I was just a kid. But I look back at your career and what you were able to accomplish in San Francisco and the success there and not to be disrespectful or take anything away from playing in Texas at Arlington. But I really believe you played in the two best baseball towns in America. I think St. Louis to this day to me is the greatest baseball town that I've ever been in. I covered them for three years. It's remarkable. But how blessed when you look back at your career that you were able to experience playing for the Giants and the Cardinals? You know, uh, you, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, you know, the Giants had such an unbelievable history. And, you know, they really hadn't won since the 60s. And they went through that little lull. And Al Rosen came in there and Roger Craig came in there and said, we are going to win. And they took chances on myself and Robbie Thompson, Matt Williams and Kurt Manwaring and, you know, some of the other guys. And all of a sudden, you know, we turned around this whole organization. And now it is one of the organizations that's a, a stud organization. So then, you know, you leave from there, you go to, I went, I went to Texas, to, you know, it was known for the Cowboys, wasn't known for the Rangers. Sure. We, won the, we won the first three ever division championships in, you know, Rangers history. So, you know, and that goes back to when they were the Senators too. So, you know, that shows you how that's changed. Went to Baltimore, didn't have a real great experience there, and then went to St. Louis, and I thought I was in baseball heaven. I mean, absolutely incredible. You knew it as a as an opposing player coming in and playing in St. Louis. You knew how good the fans were. You knew how good the organization was. But then being a player, it's it's absolutely outstanding how good St. Louis is, and I was fortunate enough to play for him for a little while. I get the impression that you love teaching baseball and that you love working with the younger players. But I also know you love your life and you love your fishing and you love everything else about where you live. Could you ever see yourself being a big league manager? You know what? I could if I had a team without a bunch of babies. I'm not mm-hmm. I'm not the guy that's going to pat you on the back all the time and kiss your ass and kiss your ass. After a while, I'm going to jump in your grill and I'm going to step on your toes, and I'm going to beat on you because you ain't doing it the right way, and you need to grow up, young man, and I'm going to make sure you grow up. And that's kind of where I'm at right now. I really enjoy doing what I'm doing for the Giants. I'm one of their special hitting guys. you know. So I come in and I work with, with not only the major leaguers but also the minor leaguers. But I enjoy doing that. But then when I start getting enough of those babyfied you know, attitudes, I get the hell out of Dodge. So down the road, maybe so, Grant, I might, you know, entertain, you know, managerial thought. But right now, no, I got to have some boys that grow up a little bit. I'm really so interested to hear you say that because I spent 32 years in the NBA and the drill sergeant type of coaches, just to put it out there, that I used to see in the 80s and the 90s and and the way they dealt with their players. Coaches now in the NBA can't do that anymore. The players have so much power. They have so much entitlement. And you almost have to have your arm around these kids. And you almost have to be like a father-like figure. I've seen it. I've seen things change in that sport. 
Is that going on in baseball too right now? Yes, definitely. Definitely. I mean, you know, like I said, there's a lot of patting on the back and kissing ass and all that sort of stuff. And that's, <laughs> that's what you will. used to say it all the time. He goes, Oh, because whenever I'd come into town, he goes, Oh, here comes coach common sense. You know, <laughs> I was like, I was like, what the hell are we doing in here? You know? So it was, it was kind of funny, but you know, we, we got some of the, some of the gentlemen and ladies that are on the, the chat room right here. And, you know, somebody was talking about hitting at Oracle park it used to be AT&T and Brandon Belt and I had this discussion. I said, you know, I said, I would actually really enjoy hitting at Oracle, not to pull the ball into the bay, but because the place where the ball goes out is left center. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there were there were days at Candlestick, you couldn't hit a cannon out of left center. And and so you had to adjust your stance in about his box, you know, stuff like that, try to hook balls, you know, all that craziness. I think that I would actually hit pretty well at Oracle because of the way the ball shoots out of left center, besides the fact that, you know, you can hook a ball out there in the bay. As we wrap this up, what was the most enjoyable part of your career? I say this to a lot of people, and I really mean it sincerely. I enjoyed playing the game. It's been a, it's what I've done my whole life since I was a kid. Those three or four hours out on the field, I was in hog heaven. You know, the plane flights and the hotel rooms and blah, 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 blah. That kind of got old in a hurry. But walking out in between the two white lines and playing the game, man, I was a, I was a pig in slop. I was loving life. Well, I can't thank you enough. And I will tell you, when I watch you in Bernsey, I learned about baseball. Like, I'm 61 years old, and I'm like, shit, I just learned something I did not know. You know what? I, I really enjoy it. I really enjoy it. And these are the kind of things that I'm trying to bring to some of our minor leaguers, especially when I see them. When you are watching them take batting practice and you're seeing a lot of these, like, humpback line drives, what they're doing is they're rolling their hands, almost like almost like a tennis player would hit backhand or something like that. And they, mm -hmm. they roll their hands to get the ball to go over the net. And in baseball, you don't want to roll your wrists until after the ball is like completely left the bat. I mean, you want to have, you want to have full extension all the way through. I mean, you can't go no more. And then you start to roll your wrists to get out of your swing. But by that time, the ball's way gone off your bat. Now the guys are getting here and they're starting to roll right when, you know, they're coming into contact. So you're seeing two things. You're either seeing a lot of humpback line drives or you're seeing these routine piece of trash ground balls. And these are the kind of things that we have to fix. Well, man, th this was a real treat for me. The only thing I really did not like about your career is you didn't play first base for the Yankees because at Yankee Stadium, <laughs> I know you hit all fields, but shit, can you imagine how many home runs you would have had if you played in Yankee Stadium? Hey, you know what, Grant? There was a rumor out there, and it went on for about two or three years about me for Mattingly, like, straight up. And I was like, well, I wouldn't <laughs> mind that. <laughs> I wouldn't mind that. Hey, hey, I'd be moving around that batter's box. I'd be hooking some stuff down yonder. <laughs> hey, Will, thanks again, man. Great. I really appreciate it. Have a safe trip and, uh, you know, have a great time working with the youngsters. And hopefully we can do it again soon, man. Be good. I appreciate it. I'd love to come back on. Thank you again, Grant. Really appreciate it. Man, I could talk to Will Clark all day long. What a fun 
fun guy to talk to. I really enjoyed that conversation with the former great San Francisco Giant. Hey, have you heard about AdLoad Technologies? It is a brand new, innovative way to advertise your company. Utilizing LED digital displays that are embedded in the back of semi-trailers so that your message will always flow with traffic and capture attention of consumers in high traffic areas. Additionally, AdLoad can provide comprehensive and intelligent reporting, giving you accurate impression counts and exposure to analyze your marketing strategy for the long term. Just go to AdLoad, A-D-L-O-A-D, AdLoadTechnologies.com for more information. Hey, it's time now for our Crowd Ultra Q&A. Just go to crowdultra.com. Takes a moment to sign up and maybe I'll answer your question right here on my podcast. Tristan wants to know, what's your take on the NBA's playing tournament this year? Hey, the NBA lost a lot of money. All right. They continue to lose a lot of money. They are trying to figure out ways to increase their revenue stream. And this is one of the ways. I mean, I'm not crazy about it, but it does keep a little bit more interest as we get down to the end of the regular season and the league will make some more money. So for that reason, I understand it. Do I think it's going to be long term? Eh, I wouldn't go that far. Uh, Jeff wants to know what's my opinion on these NFL teams boycotting off-season workouts. The reality is fans don't give a damn what happens in the off-season. Fans don't care whether they have OTAs, uh, whether they're working out. They don't care. They don't care. You know what they care about? They care that when September rolls around, their teams are going to be available to watch on TV, that there's not going to be a work stoppage. There's not going to be a stoppage due to a pandemic. They're going to be able to go to the games and that their teams are going to play. All right? That's what they care about. Fans don't give a damn what goes on in the offseason. That's my opinion. All right, Tim wants to know, why do I think there's been so many injuries to star players in the NBA this year? I haven't really noticed it. Uh, is it different this year than in years past? I mean, I know if you're talking about LeBron with the high ankle sprain, I mean, that's just that's that just happens. I mean, but I, I haven't really noticed that, Tim. I really haven't. Maybe I need to look at it more closely. Mark says, hey, Grant, was Bill Russell – more dominant than MJ. Well, he was dominant in a different way. He was a defensive dominant player, you know, blocking shots, rebounding. He altered uh, the way the games were played. I mean, if you look at the rings he has, and yeah, you, you might say he was more dominant than MJ. That's a great question. I haven't really thought of it. Very difficult, Mark, to compare different errors. But yeah, you could certainly make that argument. Sam goes, whose pregame warm-up routines would you enjoy watching? Well, I used to love watching Ray Allen. Ray Allen would come out three hours before every game, and I used to love watching his routine. Focused, moving at game speed. I used to love that. I used to love watching Isaiah Thomas's pregame routine, not the Isaiah Thomas of the Pistons, the Isaiah who started his career with Sacramento. Same thing, would come out, you know, three hours early. I used to watch LeBron and his pregame workout. I mean, he was full tilt. He'd have a lather going. Uh, those are some that really stick out that I really enjoy. Jake wants to know, are the Nuggets championship hopes lost with Murray's torn ACL? Yep. I don't think there's any doubt about that. They could be, you know, win around maybe two, but I don't see any more than that. That's a devastating, devastating loss for that. Ernie wants to know, what do I think about the NFL expecting team employees to get vaccinated? I understand. If they if team employees are going to be around the players, yeah, they're going to want them to be vaccinated. I understand that. It makes perfect sense, you know, makes perfect sense. 
Ben wants to know, do I think or do I find it ridiculous or stupid to t- to cancel games due to tragic events? Well, you'd have to define tragic events. That's number one. I mean, you know, 9-11 is different than maybe what happened in Minneapolis, both tragic, but obviously on different levels. Uh, it's up to the individual organization and whether they fear for the security of their players and personnel going into arenas. Um, do I think it's ridiculous? Do I think it's stupid? That's not really for me to say. That's for the individual business in that particular city. I, I can't really say. I, I don't. I, every situation is different. Mr. Wolf says, do you like the idea of moving the pitcher's mound back a foot like they're doing in the minors? I do not. I don't like anything going on with baseball right now. I, I don't even watch the game anymore for the most part. I'll watch a little bit. I'm, I'm just turned off by the way the game is played. Martin wants to know, will Aaron Donald's assault charge get in the way of this upcoming season? Well, he hasn't been charged with anything yet. That's number one. Uh, there are accusations. So we'll just have to wait and see. For those that don't know, there was a gentleman who was uh, sent to the hospital or went to the hospital after a early morning, late night altercation at a bar nightclub. I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, it was in the Pittsburgh area. And he said that Aaron Aaron Donald is the one that assaulted him. As they say, stay tuned. Chase says, what sport do you think has the worst replay system? I think it's football. Not NFL, college football. I think college football replay system is the worst thing ever invented. I think it absolutely hinders the game and the way it is played. It's terrible. Absolutely. When I say the way the game is played, because it keeps on breaking up the rhythm all the time. Rob wants to know, have other sports leagues throughout the world gotten into politics like in America? I don't know. I can only say that I hope not, but I don't know the answer to that. Alex wants to know, could you see the Hornets or Pelicans being a desirable free agent destination? No, I cannot. Absolutely cannot. Willie wants to know, agree or disagree? The NBA should have an incentive for regular season success. Agree. I think you're spot on. Agree. Tom wants to know, how many more years do you think it will take Seattle to get the Sonics back? I think they'll have a team within five years. Uh, Corey wants to know, should the Pats draft a quarterback this year? Yes, they should, in my opinion. If they feel like there's a guy on the board that can eventually be their quarterback, yes, I do. Uh, Lucas wants to know, do I pay any attention to the MLS? Well, I pay attention to what's going on in Sacramento because I really hope that they get an MLS team. I don't watch the MLS, but I'm paying attention to it in that regard. Uh, Ross wants to know, does Julian Edelman still have productive years left? Well, he just announced his retirement, so he doesn't think he does. So if he doesn't think he does, then I don't think he does. Does that make sense? Um, And again, thank you so much for your Crowd Ultra questions. Just go to CrowdUltra.com and maybe I'll answer your question right here on If You Don't Like That. It's time for Rant. Rant. Hey, today's show also sponsored by Manscaped, the global leaders in men's below-the-waist grooming. And today they sponsor my rant. Hey, did you know that one guy 
every hour, every day is diagnosed with testicular cancer. So, hey, this is a reminder to all of the men listening to check yourself before you wreck yourself. Manscaped, in addition to providing the right tools and solutions for safe and easy manscaping, they've partnered with the Testicular Cancer Society. They're spreading awareness for men's health and early cancer detection. And while you are taking care and really examining yourself, remember, do it once a month, all right? And if you feel any lumps or swelling, give your doctor a call. And in addition to checking yourself regularly, make sure your sack is looking fresh and clean with the Manscaped Perfect Package 3.0. Inside the Perfect Package, you'll find products and liquid formulations that have been developed to turn your bathroom into a salon for your balls. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code NAPES, N-A-P-E-S, at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code NAPES, N-A-P-E-S, at manscaped.com. That's N-A-P-E-S. Your balls will thank you. How about those Sacramento Kings? The other night, the Washington Wizards come in and put 70 on the board in the first half. Fans saying that the team has quit on Luke Walton and the coaching staff. How many freaking times over the years have fans said this? How embarrassing. Seriously, let's just call it the way it is. How embarrassing. Has this franchise become, really, how embarrassing are the Sacramento Kings? Year after year after year after year. No progress in sight. No hope for the fans. I mean, you tell me, all right? Maybe I'm going overboard, right? My rant, maybe I'm Grant Napier's going crazy. He's going overboard. All right. Prove me wrong with a comment. Hit me up on social media. Am I wrong? Are the Kings getting any better? Does this team look like that they have a lot of light or any light at the end of the tunnel? Once again, the 2020-21 season turns into an absolute disaster. That's right, disaster. The Sacramento Kings now with a record of 22-33. and The only teams worse in the conference, the Thunder, the Rockets, the Timberwolves, 22 and 33, going nowhere. Fans say that the team quit on Luke Walton and the coaching staff. What an absolutely gutless basketball team. Gutless. There's no other word to say it. And I've said this, and I'm going to say it again. The organization, the team, should be grateful. They should be very thankful that fans are not allowed in to watch the games because it would be embarrassing because they would be booed off the floor. They would be booed off the floor. Where's the pride, right? Where's the professionalism? Is the team really that bad? I guess the answer to that question is, yeah, they really are because this year is not an aberration. This year is just like every other year. So, how else could you come up with any other observation and conclusion than the team is really bad? That most of the teams in the NBA simply have much better players. So, once again, Kings fans are left hoping that they get the magic ping pong ball and that the next LeBron James or Zion Williamson or Anthony Davis or Tim Duncan 
that the Kings in that ping pong pole come up number one and they finally get that player. Boy, that's a tough way to go through every year. That the only way you're ever going to be good is to get lucky in the draft. That's about as bad as it gets. I don't have the answers. I don't have the answers other than, once again, another embarrassing, pitiful season for the Sacramento Kings. And that's my rant for today. And that's my podcast for today. Really appreciate Will Clark. That was a great conversation. Coming up on Tuesday, the head coach of the Arkansas Razorbacks, former Warriors coach, former Kings coach, He's done a great job. Eric Musselman, he's going to join me on Tuesday. And don't forget to check out my video rants as well over on YouTube. Hey, make it a great weekend. Thank you so much for listening to If You Don't Like That with Grant Napier. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live.